what is it that they say that, you know, life comes at you fast? I don't think our most recent generations understand how new instant communication is in this world. I know that telephones have been around since like 1876, okay? I fully understand that. What I didn't know was that telephone. Tele means uh, far and phone means sound. Telephone, that word has been around since the late 1600s. It was originally, the word was made up to describe the children's toy that we made when we were young, the string phone. And my big question is, since tin cans weren't invented until the 1860s, what did they use in the 1600s for their string phones? But string phones, the idea of sending vocal sounds, uh, sound waves along a wire has been known for hundreds of years. Just a little aside, now you have some, just a little bit of more useless knowledge in case anybody asks. So you might think instant communication is not as new as the last couple of generations, but see, just to make me seem old, and that's, you know, to make me seem old, okay? When I was a boy, my grandparents had a hand crank telephone, okay? My grandparents, my grandfather and his brothers put in the first phone system in the San Fernando Valley. It was to connect my great-great-grandmother who lived in the mountains of Chatsworth with her relatives who were farmers down in the valley below. So, because they were farmers, they knew how to do things back then, my grandfather and uncles strung a line five, six miles up into, uh, into the mountains of Chatsworth so that their grandmother could be safe and summon help in her mid-70s if she needed help. So my grandparents still had a crank telephone. When I was a boy, the, the only telephone service in the West San Fernando Valley was a party line, okay? You have to be of a certain age to even know what a party line is nowadays, but all of the neighbors were on one telephone line, and you knew if it was your phone call by a coded number of rings sent out to a house. Now, that did not stop anybody from listening into your phone call if you wanted to. They could pick it up and cover the mouthpiece, and they did do that. So there was no privacy to these communications. That's how old I am. Hand-cranked telephones and party lines. I will point out that in approximately 1975, when I asked my wife out on our first date, I used a car phone. And that car phone took up the entire back seat of our construction Uh, It wasn't a truck, we had it in a car, but uh, my dad put one in because stopping, we would have six or seven jobs going on at a time, stopping to find a payphone booth to make a call to the phones we had installed on each one of our construction sites was a pain 
for my dad, so he had this phone put in, and that phone also was a radio telephone. Uh, that, uh, well, not also, that phone was a radio telephone that you radioed in to a dispatcher who would connect you to a number, and anybody with a car phone on that service could hear your phone call. So, who knows how many people heard me ask Aaron out on our first date. But we don't, and she was really impressed because nobody had car phones. I mean, this was, this was, okay. As recently, just to me, I, I think I've shared this one before. As recently as 1979, when I moved up here to Lake Arrowhead, the local telephone company, it was GTE at the time, had operators hand plugging in cables into the operator's panel to connect the incoming calls with the people up here. We, I'm told that we went from the very, very oldest, the last hand-plugged service in the United States, because not many people lived up here, to the most modern computerized one overnight. You know, it was, it was only like the first year I was up here that we still had operators connecting your phone calls. But we did have that. Now I really sound old, don't I? So, in those days of limited technology, it was easy to lose track of people if they just moved to another side of the local area. My a really close friend of mine growing up from uh, elementary school through the first two years of junior high, his parents divorced, and he moved from Chatsworth to Costa Mesa. That's not that far. There might not have been freeways connecting us back then, though. I didn't have his phone number. I was, you know, 15, 14, 13. Uh, I couldn't drive to visit him. We lost complete track of each other, ninth grade through, through um, the end of high school. And then he came back for the summer before he went off to college to live with his mother because he had gone to live with his father. He came to live with his mother. We got together as now young adults, spent the summer having a good time with each other, and then he went off to college, Oral Roberts University in Oklahoma, as a matter of fact. And, and a few years later, probably just after the end of college, my mom ran into his mom at a grocery store and found out that he was getting married, you know. Well, I had a trip, cross-country trip planned by car, and I thought, it coincides with his wedding. But I had no way to get a hold of him. I didn't, my mother didn't have his mother's phone number. I didn't know where they lived. So what I did was I knew the approximate date, and I showed up a week or two early, and with a pocket full of change, I stopped and found a phone booth. And I called the information operator for Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, Tulsa, Oklahoma probably wasn't as big as it is today, but it was big enough. I mean, there were multiple phone books, and I found probably the most patient information operator in all of the United States. Because, you know, she's who are you looking for? And I give the name. And she says, well, let's, where does he live? And I said, Tulsa. And she said, yeah. Uh, can you narrow that down? And I say, no. And so she says, well, you know, let's start here. And three hours later, I located my friend. 
and uh, called him and just to let you know I cr- crashed both his wedding and his bachelor party on this trip and so anyway the thing is is that what did I do to, to get in touch with a lost friend okay well I drove to his city now mind you I was already on my way I, you know I, I had no itinerary, so I was just on my way. So, you know, stop, spend a few hours, find, and make a telephone call. And um, I bring this up because in our section of Scripture for our sermon today, Acts eleven nineteen through 26, the Apostle Paul is lost, and Barnabas needs to find him. Now, the Apostle Paul didn't know he was lost. Okay, He was only lost to everybody who previously knew him in Jerusalem and those areas. Well, let's set the scene this way. I mentioned before that the book of Acts is, first, not necessarily in tight chronological order. This was not Luke's purpose in writing the book to give you an orderly account. It was to give you an important account. The point of Acts is not the timeline, but the events. Last week, when we ended the sermon with Peter and answering the criticism of the circumcision party, you remember he comes back to Jerusalem, and there the circumcision party is concerned that, he, that Peter has eaten with the Gentiles in Caesarea. The very next sentence, verse 18, and there looks like there's no break, is... Five years later, okay? So we've gone from verse 17, and Peter, very next verse, is five years later now. So I want you to keep that in mind. The last, it's now 42 AD. It was 37 AD, it's now 42 AD. The last we saw Barnabas and the Apostle Paul was when Barnabas defended Paul to the Apostles in Jerusalem after the Apostle Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. That was eight years before, okay? That was no later than 34 AD, and now we're in 42 AD. So the question was, the last time we saw him, Paul and Barnabas was in Jerusalem. Paul stirred up the people in the Jews in Jerusalem. They wanted to kill him. They got him out of the city up to Caesarea and put him on a boat for Tarsus. You know, some people spread joy and happiness everywhere they go and some people, everyone is glad when they enter a room. And then there's the Apostle Paul. Everywhere he goes, people want to kill him. Okay, this is, this is just what the story of his life is. He had left Damascus because the king of Arabia wanted to kill him. He leaves Jerusalem because the Jews want to kill him. Uh, so Acts 9, 26 through 31a says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, 
they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. See, when Paul leaves, things settle down a little bit. So Paul returned to his hometown of Tarsus. There he disappeared for those next eight years. The apostles in Jerusalem knew that he was preaching in the region, but it was a fairly large region. They knew that he was still alive and they knew he was still preaching, but they did not know where he was. So our passage today picks up not only the story of the partnership of Paul and Barnabas in ministry, but of the establishment of what have been might have been the first Gentile church. Now, we've had a number of passages now where we say, well, this is the first outreach to the Gentiles. Well, well, you know, we don't, like I say, we don't have it in chronological order. Acts eleven nineteen through 26 that we're studying today says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Like I say, the church in Antioch might be the first Gentile church. We've seen the Ethiopian official uh, who became a Christian on the road back to Ethiopia uh, through Philip the Evangelist. And I said it is tradition that he went back and started the church in Africa. We don't know it for certain. That's, that's tradition. We know, an, we know about Cornelius and the, and the people that Peter went to preach to. I mean, we've just talked about this for, you know, like six weeks. And we know that an early church started in Caesarea, but we do not know that it was the same church. So, cut me a little slack when I say that we do know that this was a Gentile church and started from this beginning right here. So, it doesn't matter which is first, does it? Now, this missionary outreach to the church in Antioch is completely uh, separate from the Ethiopian or from Peter and Caesarea. It is probable that none of these people knew about the others at the time that were spread out enough There is no instant communication. Nobody is talking to anybody else. Like I say, the church in Jerusalem does not know where Paul is, just that it's reported that he is preaching. As for Antioch, much as we see a number of cities in Greco-Roman lands named Alexandria, and I don't know if you know this, but there are Alexandrias all over the Greco-Roman lands because 
Alexander the Great would go in, conquer a region, establish a city, and he would name it Alexandria. Okay, That's one of the uh, perks of being king. Well, there are at least a dozen towns in this same area named Antioch. These Antiochs were all founded by the same person. And you'll be surprised to learn that he was one of the main generals of Alexander. That when he went in, he, uh, his name was Seleucus. Seleucus. Don't worry about how it's pronounced. Uh, it was not Antioch. That was his father. He named all of his, uh, all of his conquered towns after his father. This is the most prominent Antioch, the Antioch in Syria that we're talking about today. It was one of the three major cities in the Roman Empire. The third place only after Rome and Athens. It was a cosmopolitan town. They, I found various ranges of what its population was, as high as 600,000 people. A major city even today. Uh, as low as 200,000. It's what it was known as, and, and so we're going to have a little dispute here. It was known as the most wicked city in, Rome, in the Roman Empire, okay? And how it beat out Corinth, I do not know. Because Corinth was a pretty wicked city. But it was, the playwright Juvenal, famous Roman playwright, one of his most famous plays, mentions... Antioch of Syria. Antioch of Syria was on the river Orontes and he wrote, and this is just from memory because I'm so well read, no I read it earlier but I didn't include it in this that the sewage that enters the Orontes, basically from Antioch finds its way into the Tiber, meaning Antioch was so wicked it was managing to pollute Rome where the Tigris River was Uh, because they were not anywhere near each other. But it was so wicked that it was polluting Rome, according to Juvenal. Now, you might wonder why such wicked cities as Corinth and Antioch attracted Christians. You know, that could be a little bit of a condemnation here. But remember, one of the early great churches was the church at Corinth that uh, the Apostle Paul was at. This, the first Gentile church, is in Syria. And if you wonder why the Christians were there, I direct you to uh, Willie Sutton. Willie Sutton was a bank robber. And he was asked one time why he robbed banks. And his answer was, that's where the money is. Okay? A very good answer. Why are the Christians starting churches in Corinth and Antioch? It's not just because that's where the sinners are, because there's sinners everywhere, but that was the main pagan. Just as Corinth was a center of pagan worship, temples with temple prostitutes and such, so was Antioch. It was a center as even the Romans said, the sewer, sewage that pours into the Orontes uh, infects Rome. This is why Christians were there. Verse 19 says, Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word 
to no one except Jews. The stoning of Stephen and the persecution of the church by the then Saul of Tarsus is still paying dividends, if you want to call it that, 11 years later. The Hellenistic Greek-speaking Jews who fled Jerusalem uh, for peaceful areas never returned to Judea. They didn't come back. This is 11 years later. They're not, they didn't flee for a short time and they're going to resettle back in Jerusalem. They're gone. They are in places, it says, such as Cyprus, Phoenicia, and Antioch. These are all Greek-speaking areas dominated by Gentiles, but also with a large population of Jews. And when I say a large population of Jews, no more than 10% of the population, and probably far less than that, but enough Jews to support synagogues that the Christians could go preach in, talk to people, about their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. As these displaced Christians were longer in these lands, now stretching over a decade there, that dynamic changed of only speaking to the Jews. Because verse 26 says, But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. The language here is a little confusing. We already knew that they were talking about Jesus to the Hellenistic Jews of Antioch. But here, when it says they spoke to the Hellenists, the actual phrase meant all the Hellenists. And it's once again where our um, translation doesn't give us the full gist. It wasn't just the Hellenists that we know about. It was all the Hellenists. These men from who had grown up on Cyprus and Cyrene and in Antioch itself, who grew up, as Jesus did, among many Gentiles, are now reaching out to those Gentiles. But there was also a language difficulty, a translation problem, with the Hellenistic uh, Christians preaching the Lord Jesus Christ to these people as it says, to the Greek-speaking Gentiles. So often would they use the term Jesus Christ that the Gentiles fell into thinking, probably as some of you did as children or as I did, that Jesus was the first name and Christ was the last name. Okay? These were not Hellenistic Jews. They didn't know the ins and outs of Jewish theology to talk about the Christ meant absolutely nothing to them. So all the preaching about Jesus Christ sounded like a personal name to them. And this led to a couple of things. First, it separated the Christ-worshipping Jews from the other Jews. Okay? And it separated them because Antioch was where the term Christian originated, as we saw in this. It's the first place people were called Christians. And so what we have is we have these Hellenistic Jews preaching Jesus Christ, who the Gentile Hellenists think is a name, and thinks and attaches the name Christos, in Greek Christ, to these people. However, they didn't really know what Christos meant. So they used the word Christos, which means useful. Okay? Now, it just so happens 
that Christ was useful to them. And the Christians made a point of being useful. So we have this little word dynamic, Christos, Christos, going on here. And this is attached to the Christians. But the other thing it does, besides separating them from the Jews, so we have a division for the first time between Christians and Jews in the world, it also removed the respectability, the legal standing of being a Jew in the Roman Empire from the Christians. Remember, Judaism was accepted. That gave legal standing to their religion. But when the Christians were separated out, they no longer had the legal standing of the Jews. They were an outlaw sect. It hasn't happened yet here. But it will plague the church for 300 years, this, this division, because we are still 70 years from Christians being officially thrown out of the temple, out of the synagogues. Until the year about 105 to 110, Christians met in Jewish synagogues or until the temple was destroyed in the temple. And make a long story short, because Christians were illegal, they were bringing disrepute upon the Jews because they were meeting in Jewish synagogues. This is one of the main reasons that the Jews threw the Christians out of the temple was because they were an illegal religion because of what happens here in Antioch. Innocently, as a matter of fact, nobody meant harm to the Christians in Antioch. The Antiochs who called them Christians meant it complementarily and because they were accepting the Christians among them. Well, this and other misunderstandings about this new Christianity would haunt, as I said, the church for 300 years. Verses 21 through 22 say, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, as they did with the preaching of Philip and the um, conversion of the Samaritans, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem dispatched a trusted Christian to see what is going on in Antioch. This time, they chose Barnabas, who in verse 24 is described as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now, we were first introduced to Barnabas back in Acts 4. Um, I'll read verse uh, 32 through 37. This is where we first see Barnabas. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. This is the very beginning of the church, by the way. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, 
sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it in the, at the apostles' feet. And you will recognize this story because this act of Christian charity was then counterfeited by Ananias and Sapphira. You will note that I often say what a blessing it is to have your name favorably noted in Scripture, like Barnabas and not like Ananias and Sapphira. This then is Barnabas, a godly Christian, both known this way both in Jerusalem and down through the last 2,000 years. Now, for this reason, probably also because Barnabas was also a Hellenistic Christian, as it says, from the Gentile majority island of Cyprus, he was sent to investigate the goings-on 300 miles north in Antioch in Syria. Verses 23 and 24 say, When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them to all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Where the circumcision party was critical of Peter and jealous of what was going on with the Gentiles, but also critical of Peter in going, simply going to the household of the Gentiles. When Barnabas arrives in Antioch and saw the grace of God, as scripture says, he was glad. Okay? This is truly a man who wanted to see Christianity spread, but was not jealous of anyone. Um, Should not every Christian be glad at the working of the Holy Spirit wherever it is found? Are you not glad at the working of the Spirit in China, as I am? I mean, my daughter sends me updates on, uh, on a church in China, and it's a famous church in China where the pastors keep getting arrested and go. One just got out after 10 years in jail and got to meet his children finally, you know, his unborn children when he was arrested. Are you not glad of what's going on in Africa among the church? I am. Are we jealous? I mean, it's, it's not as though the United States or Europe are this hotbed of Christianity that it belongs to us and it does not belong to these other countries. Christianity does not belong to a people other than the people of God and we should rejoice wherever Christian work is going on and wherever the Holy Spirit is blessing that work. There is a problem with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, however, in that so many people were becoming Christians in Antioch that it allowed false teachers a pathway in to making a buck off the people, just as it does anywhere. And Barnabas, as a wise Christian man of good heart, knows that this is going to happen. So many people were becoming converted to Christ that they were overwhelming whatever missionaries were there. Luckily, or rather providentially, Barnabas knew just the man to help with this new mission field. Verse 25 says, 
So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now, this is just a throwaway line in Scripture. Remember, for whatever reason, God has not blessed the church with paper to write on, and these things are compressed. And this little line, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, doesn't speak to the magnitude of the task that we are just now going on. I only had to drive to Tulsa to make a phone call, or a series of phone calls, or a lot of phone calls, okay? But Barnabas had to leave what we know as Syria, get himself down to the coast, and either follow the coastline up to Turkey, or take a ship. It does not say how he got there, but these are the common ways to do it. Or take a ship across some treacherous waters there, land on the seacoast, and then go inland towards Tarsus. Who knows what this trip really entailed? And the thing is here is that when it says that uh, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, that word look here, okay, that we just that we just call look. And this is my problem with translations, not that I can do anything else because I don't speak the languages, uh, is anazoteo in Greek. It means a laborious search for human beings with an implication of difficulty. That's what this word means, okay? So unless you know... But does that, no, it just says simply that Paul went to look for, uh, Barnabas went to look for Paul. But no, it was a laborious search for a human being with an implication of difficulty. And it was made more difficult because in, in um, Philippians 3.8, Paul is going through the list of all the things that has happened to him in his ministry. And he says, and I have lost all things. Well, apparently Paul was disinherited. In Tarsus, he had no fixed address anymore. He was living, going among houses of believers, staying with them while he preached the word. So, what does Barnabas have to do when he gets there? He has to go on a house-to-house search for Paul. Or maybe he can just look for a mob that's getting ready to stone somebody and, and cut to the chase that way, but it doesn't say that. Um, but he has to go on a laborious search for Paul. So, with that, he went to look for Paul, and the next verse says, and when he had found him, okay, we're just to, when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, okay? Remember, bringing him to Antioch now means getting back down from Tarsus to the coastline, either walking down the coastline or taking his ship and then going inland to um, Antioch. You know, it's no. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And it, postscript here, it says, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. So, so today we have sort of this, you know, tale of two technologies, okay? It's a tale of two technologies. On one hand, I drove to a city I didn't know and spent a few hours on the phone searching for a friend I hadn't seen for a number of years. And on the other hand, Barnabas walks 30 miles or so, gets on a ship, sails, walks another 
who knows how far I could have done the research, but I didn't just for you, because then this would take longer. And conduct a house-to-house search for an old friend who he hadn't seen in years. The question is, who was more invested in their search? Okay. Who was more invested? We have all this technology nowadays, but then God could have invested biblical time people with the, with the technology. His timeline could have changed. The early church didn't have this. Why didn't they? Why did God make this so difficult for their outreach? And the only thing I can think of that it must be that human effort adds a quality that the quantity that technology supplies does not add. There is something about the human touch. Uh, When Niels was at Cal Baptist, uh, we went to a service at Harvest Christian Fellowship, and I'm going to make a jab at Harvest just it's not a bad-hearted chap, okay? They're a huge church. Uh, they are invested in all these different technologies. They're now a Baptist church, which is Southern Baptist, which is striking. Anyway, we went to a service there. And this just happened to be the church service. They were rolling out their brand new prayer app, okay? You could, you could sign up for their prayer app. And, and the fellow introducing it and, you know, he pointed out, you know, anyone could click on the app and, and type in a prayer. Or they could click on the app and they, and they could see prayers from around the world. Bam, he says. And so anytime I want to make a point to Niels nowadays, I say bam, because it really irritates him. But just click on the app and bam, there it is. Okay? It strikes me that that's not the same. Clicking on an app and going bam is not the same as having Ryan Coher's parents sitting on a couch across from us, explaining what Ryan is going through in a, in a prison in Mozambique and what his prayer requests are. There is something different about clicking on an app and bam, and face-to-face talking to people about their needs. God didn't give the early church the technology to effortlessly reach out to every nation to make disciples. Okay? Two of, the, two of the Gospels end with go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God made them go out face to face. There was no app for this. And there was no app for it because it would not have been more effective. And in fact, it would have been ineffective. The only thing that's going to bring people in are face-to-face encounters with other people, heart-to-heart. Clicking on a computer is not going to do it. Have I told you that God knows what he's doing? Never mind. That would be. But it's true. God uses people. And people invested enough to take on hardship. People invested enough to take on perilous journeys. People who will take on anything like Barnabas and Saul did for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, I can't say that's why there wasn't any technology. There might have been another reason. But God uses people. God doesn't use technology. 
He sends people where they need to go to advance the kingdom of God. Let's pray.